Good morning, everyone, and happy Resurrection uh, Day. I'm glad you're all here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Um, It's good to be with you all. If you want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with our call to worship, where we're reminded each week um, that why we are here is not to be motivated, not to um, improve ourselves merely, but to worship the triune God. And we see in Scripture these calls of God to worship him. And so I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me in the non-bold section. This comes from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number 253, we'll sing, Come Thou Fount. Oh, to grace, how. 
prophet Isaiah many, many, many years ago before the birth of our Lord. Tells us in Isaiah 53, pretty much laying out where we stand. It reads this way. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In his, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you would all pray this prayer of confession with me, please. Heavenly Father, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. And even though we, like sheep, have gone astray and sinned against you, you have sent your Son, the suffering servant, for us and for our salvation. Forgive us for the sake of Jesus Christ. And by the work of your Holy Spirit, remind us of the power of your resurrection. Amen. If you would turn to hymn 224, we're going to sing Before the Throne.
of where we've come from, the base level of just being man, the sin that we've been born into. Uh, but we're always reminded later on, as in today, the hope that we have, the only hope that we have is not in our own righteousness, it's not in our own goodness, our own morality, because that will always fall short, guaranteed, every time. But through Christ and only through Christ do we find the redemption and the hope that is not in us, but is in the Father. And in Romans 8.1, it gives us this promise and this assurance of that pardon. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't get any better than that. Amen. So in our Orthodox Catechism, going back to school here, our question number 44. What does the resurrection of Christ profit us? So if you're new to the Lord, maybe you've never even considered this question. This is, this is one of those questions in the Catechism that that helps put our focus on the whole purpose of this resurrection. If you would read with me the answer to this question, what does the resurrection of Christ promise? First, First by his, his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he, that he might, might make, make us partakers of that righteousness which he has purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life, and lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Well, good morning again. It's, like I said, a joy to be with you all on this beautiful Sunday. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll be providentially coming to the end of our time in Romans chapter 8. And we'll be looking at verses 31 through 39. And so far, as we just read, we've seen this great truth that for those that are in Christ, there's no condemnation. That from Romans 8.1 on, we've seen all these many promises and blessings that Christ has purchase for his people, that what we were unable to do, God has done. What the law was unable to do, God has done in the person and work of his son, Christ. And that we've seen that really to sum up the whole chapter, that what is the point of this chapter? Why is Paul writing this? It's that for the believer, salvation is certain. That for the one who puts their faith in Christ alone, Salvation is sure that there's no question whether the one that puts their faith in Christ will be saved. So we've seen that there's no condemnation, that the believer has been delivered from the law, that all who put their faith in Christ are indwelt with the Spirit, given the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life, that they've been sanctified, adopted into God's family, who were once not a people, but who now are a people. That all things work together for the good of those that love them. And that from the foundation of the world to eternal glory, Christ and God is at work in our salvation. We talked last week about this golden chain of redemption. That salvation from eternity past to future glory is all a work of the triune God. That's what Romans 8 has been about. And so Paul is going to come to this crescendo at the end of chapter 8 and give us great hope, not only in our sin, but in our suffering. And we'll see this morning, not only the hope of the gospel, but the immutable, unchanging love of God for his people and the finished work of Christ. So if you want to look with me, we'll begin at verse 31. I'll read the passage. I'll pray for us and then we'll, we'll study God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says this. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we come to worship you. And even though we've seen our great sin, that we like sheep have gone astray, you have not left us to our own devices, but you have given us your word. You've given us many precious and great promises. And so this morning, we ask for the power of your spirit, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you enable the proclamation of your word, that we might be saved. Not because of our work, but because of the work of Christ. Not by what we have done, but by what you have done. For us, And would we see these great truths that your love is immutable, unchanging, and may our hope and rest this morning not be found in ourselves, but in the finished work of Christ. We pray all these things in your precious Son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we can pretty much end the service right there, right? I mean, what beautiful... Verses. What beautiful truths that we have in God's word in Romans 8. And so <laughs> there's, there's so much to be said, and yet we have to be careful, right? Because these verses are so familiar to a lot of us. We hear them in songs. We hear them, you know, on the radio. Maybe we have a bracelet or a tattoo of some of these verses. And so sometimes they become so familiar to us that... My fear, and I think our fear, should be that we lose the meaning. That there's this semantic saturation that we're so... Rep the repetition of these words causes us to forget the depth. To forget the meaning behind these words of the Apostle Paul. And the great truths that are contained in them. And so, like I said, we need to be careful that... These words do not just become superficial, that they don't just become trite or cliche sayings that we throw out every once in a while, but that they become deep truths that are rooted in the pit of our souls, that we can remember these great promises that we've been given. And so we have to ask hard questions in order to do that. You know, we see these great promises. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Who can condemn us? No one. Nothing can separate us. But we have to ask these harder questions like, why is God for us? Why can no one condemn us? Why can nothing separate us from the love of God? Those are harder questions. And so we're going to look at those this morning. We're going to ask these hard questions and see ultimately that it is not about us. It's not about how great we are, but it is about the great work of God and the great love of God in Christ. And so Paul begins with verse 31 and he says this, what then shall we say to these things? 
Paul's almost at a loss for words. That he's not only referencing back the last couple verses that we looked at last week, and not even really just Romans chapter 8, but really the whole book of Romans. That he begins the letter pointing out the condemnation of all people, both Jew and Gentile. But then also talking about this great justification that God has wrought through Christ, sending his only son to be a propitiation for our sins. And we've seen in Romans 8 this great work of sanctification, adoption. So Paul's saying, what shall we say to these things? Everything that we've seen in the letter, not just the last couple verses. And he's almost at a loss for words. What shall we say? And Paul goes on, as we'll see this morning, this will sort of be our outline, that there are five rhetorical questions that Paul puts forward. And a rhetorical question is one where the answer is assumed. It's self-evident. It's obvious. And through these questions, Paul is going to show us, as I've already said, the immutable, unchanging love of God and showing that forth in the finished work of Christ. And so hopefully we'll bear that out this morning. So we see in the second part of verse 31, this first rhetorical question, Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? That if God is for us, who can be against us? That this is a great Christian truth, right? Many of us have remembered this verse in times of trial, that the God of the world, not only the creator and sustainer of all things, but the redeemer, if he is for us, that nothing can be against us. And so Paul, the answer, like I said, is self-evident. Who can be against us? The answer is no one. The answer is no one. No one can be against us if God is for us. But I think if that we're honest, it doesn't always feel that way, right? It doesn't always feel that way. Many times in our own lives, it feels like there are many things against us. It feels like there are many things against us. Whether it's the world, right? The world hates us. The world comes against us and God's people. Maybe it's our own flesh that is against us, right? That tempts us to sin, that causes us to fall. Maybe it's the devil himself that is against us, right? The great accuser that comes against us, that tempts us to despair. And so we can look at these verses and say, if God is for us, who can be against us? But oftentimes our experience is that many things are against us. That many things are against us. That the world, the flesh, and the devil are all against us. And that this is no different for the people of God. That all the way going back into this book of Psalms, right? We see that there are psalms of lament where the psalmist is crying out, How many are my foes? How great are my foes? In Psalm 88, the psalmist says, Darkness has become my only friend. That is a deep place of despair. And so even though it feels like everything is against us, Paul gives us these words in verse 31 that nothing can be against us. So what does Paul mean? <laughs> it feels like everything is against us, but Paul is saying nothing is against us. What Paul is saying here is that ultimately nothing can be against us. That if God is for us, nothing ultimately can be against us, that though we face many trials, that ultimately nothing can be against us. Why is this? Paul goes on in verse 32. He says that he, this is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is making an argument from the greater to the lesser. That if the greater thing is true, how much more the lesser thing? That if God did not spare his own son, how will he not also give us all things? That God is not stingy with his benefits. We've talked about some of those benefits in Romans 8. We've seen the great justifying work of God, forgiving our sins, counting us as righteous, adopting us into God's family, sanctifying us by the power of the Spirit. That God is not stingy with those benefits. He doesn't hold them back. He freely gives them. And so, if he gave his own son, 
how will he not also give us all things? This is the argument from the greater to the lesser. And so in these, in verse 32, we see this great love of God, that it's unchanging, that it's immutable. It does not change. But we also see in the following verses, the justice of God. That in verse 33, Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? That Paul here is using the language of a Roman courtroom. That he's bringing us into this almost picture of a heavenly courtroom. Where there is condemnation. There is prosecuting attorneys bringing charges against. There's a judge that is rendering a verdict. Paul's bringing up this imagery. And why is he doing this? Why is Paul bringing us into the courtroom of heaven and talking about all this legal jargon? We see, why does Paul go here? It's because our biggest problem as fallen creatures is that God is good. That might surprise you. (laughs) Our biggest problem as fallen creatures is that God is good. Why? Because we are not. We are not. God is good. What does Jesus say in the Gospels? Only God is good. We are not. Only God is just. And we are not. And so Paul is bringing up this courtroom imagery and bringing about this idea of God's justice. Why? Because God is a just judge. He is a good judge. And he cannot sweep sin under the cosmic rug. He cannot put it under a rug and say, oh, it doesn't exist. God is just. If he was to do that, he would be an unjust God, an unjust judge. And so God cannot sweep our sin under the rug. And why am I saying this? It's because if we don't see the weight of what's bearing on these verses, we won't appreciate the great glory of these verses, right? If we don't see our great guilt before God, we can't see the glory of what God has done. And so when he says in verse 33, who shall bring a charge? Who can condemn? The truth is, again, everyone and everything, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they can all bring charges against us. The world can say, you've done this. Our own flesh accuses us of unrighteousness. Satan tempts us to despair. So all these things come against us and say, you're condemned. You're guilty. Here are the charges. So Paul is bringing us into the courtroom of heaven to show us the great justice and goodness of God. That What's the truth? That in all other religions, in all other worldviews, it is about what we do, right? In all other religions, in all other worldviews, doesn't matter what it is, it's about what we can do. It's about how we can work our way up to God. What can we offer God? How much can we work, right? Well, I did more good than bad, right? Or I, I did this good thing. I helped the old lady across the street. Or I'm more spiritual than this person. Or I'm better than this person. And therefore, that's what makes me right with God. And Paul is saying that does not fly in the courtroom of heaven. That perfect righteousness is necessary for justification. What is justification? It's being perfectly righteous before the law of God. And that's not us. And you could say, Kendall, well, I've done 99% of the things right. James says, if you fall at one point, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And so we're in trouble. We're in trouble. So not only do we need a perfect righteousness, we need our sin atoned for, paid for, forgiven. Not only do we need a perfect righteousness... 100%, but we need our sin that we've committed paid for. And in the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, we get this amazing picture in Zechariah 3. There's this heavenly vision of Joshua, the high priest, and he's standing before the Lord. But it says that he's clothed in filthy garments. He's clothed in filthy garments, and he's a high priest, And to be a high priest is to come before the Lord to represent the people of God, 
but you must be clean. He is unclean. So he has broken God's law. He's unworthy to be there. And we see in Zechariah that Satan stands by ready to accuse him. And what's interesting is that Satan is right. Satan is right to accuse him. He has broken God's law. He is unclean. He's wearing filthy garments. He should be cast out of the presence of God. That's us. That's us before a holy God. But what does, what happens next, right? Satan is relying on the justice of God in one sense. He's saying, God, if you're just, you have to punish him. You have to take Joshua out of your presence. But Satan forgot something, like he always does. He forgot about the love and mercy of God. And what does it say next? Behold, I have taken away your filthy garments and clothed you with pure vestments. That Christ, pictured here, the work of Christ, we can see it on the cross. That the cross of Christ is where the justice and the love of God meet. That God is just. He cannot sweep our sin under the rug. It must be paid for. And we see on the cross Christ paying for our sins. But we also see the love of God. That he would send his only son and give us a perfect righteousness that Christ has won. That we who are wearing filthy garments, those were placed on Christ on the cross. And we are given the pure garments of Christ. And so... When Paul says, who can bring a charge, he can say with confidence, it's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Where does Paul go? He doesn't look at us. He says, Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That when we struggle to say, someone can bring a charge against us, someone can condemn us, we can say, no, that Christ has died, he stood in our place, and by faith, we've been given a righteousness outside of ourselves. That when God looks at us, he does not see us, he does not see our condemnation, but sees Christ and his work. And so Paul can come to this doxological end in verse 35 when he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, And the answer to Paul's question, like we've said, is no one. That no one and no thing can separate us from this love that has been won by Christ. That nothing can separate us. And we see the profoundness of what Paul is saying because we see God's love for his people even in suffering. Even in suffering. That Look at this list here. Tribulation, distress, Persecution. This list is not what we're saved from, as if these things are taken away from the people of God. It's precisely what we're saved through. That even in the midst of these deep and dark trials and persecutions and tribulations, that the love of God cannot be separated from his people. That the love of God is so unchanging, that the work of Christ is so complete, that Paul can say, even these terrors, even death itself, cannot separate us, right? Tribulation, distress of our mind or our body, persecution from without, from within, famine, nakedness, danger, even death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that through Christ, we are more than conquerors, not because we are great, but because God is great, not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done through the person and work of his son. And so, we come back to the questions that we asked earlier, right? We don't want this to be a superficial passage of scripture. We want it to reach deep. So it's not just something we say in passing, but in the midst of the most profound trials, we have a great anchor for our souls. So we come back to those questions. Why is God for us? Why can no one condemn us? Why can nothing separate us from the love of God? And how can God be just and still forgive sinners? We see the answer is the finished work of Christ. 
the finished work of Christ, that he is the one mediator between God and man, promised in the Old Testament, Genesis 3.15, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, who in the fullness of time took on flesh, the incarnation, a body like ours, a nature like ours, and yet was fully God. Live the perfect life in obedience to every law, not 99%, 100%. Perfect obedience to the law, obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross, where we see the wrath of God satisfied, where we see the punishment that we deserved placed on Christ, that Christ became a sin, became sin for us, became accursed for us, so that we might be blessed in Him and as we remember today, and every day, hopefully, that he was not remaining in the grave, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended to the right hand of God as our great king and ever lives to make intercession for his people. Not like the other priests. The other priests died. Christ does not die. Or he did die, rather, but he rose again. And he ever lives to make intercession for his people. And so, like we talked about last week, We might fail. Christ does not, and he will not, and he cannot. And so we see that he did all these things for us and for our salvation, and that by faith alone, we're made partakers of that. How do we get those pure garments? How do we get a righteousness that is not our own? It's not by working. It's by receiving and resting in Christ alone for salvation. That he has done it, it is finished, was his cry, He's completed it. And that this is by faith alone, not by works. And we see here, not only this great work of Christ, but we see the hope that we have even in the midst of trials. That even though all these great spiritual benefits are true, that we still suffer. We still go through profound trials. And maybe some of us in this room are in those trials, right? Maybe it's outside of us. Maybe it's persecution, right? Maybe it's internal. Maybe it's our own sin. Maybe it's depression, cancer, anxiety, all these things that come against us. Many sufferings, many trials, many tribulations. There's this list here of deep and dark things. And I think sometimes we can often be like Mary, who is standing outside the tomb, right? She went to go visit the tomb on the third day, on Sunday, and she goes into the tomb and she sees the stone rolled away, but the tomb is empty. And she says, where is my Lord? And she starts weeping. And I think that can be us in our suffering and in our trials. We, we, we grieve and we are afraid and we're scared to look at things like our sin and our suffering. We don't want to look at them. We want to push them away. We want to say, oh, I'm really not that bad. Or we want to push our suffering away and say it's not that bad. And there's these great words of the theologian Gerhardus Voss. He says this about this situation in Mary that I think are very comforting. He says, in such trials, there can be no comfort for us as long as we stand outside weeping. But if only we would take the courage to fix our gaze deliberately upon the stern countenance of grief and enter unafraid into the darkest recesses of our trouble, we shall find the terror gone. Why? Because the Lord has been there before us and coming out again has left the place transfigured, making out of it by the grace of his resurrection a house of life, and that the very gate of heaven. That when we're afraid our sin will separate us from God, when we're afraid that our suffering will cause us to fall away, we need but look to Christ and look to his resurrection. That he has left the tomb, that he's not there, that he has risen. And that's not a place for our grief, it's a place for our rejoicing. That he has defeated sin and death, and that Even in our suffering, nothing can separate us from his love. And so, as we think about the many times in our life when we're tempted to either pride in our own righteousness or despair because we see our sin and we see how messed up we are, 
we can be comforted by this passage. We can see a great and glorious truth here. That even though the world, the flesh, and the devil accuse us, we can run to Christ. We can rejoice in the resurrection. And as we sang today, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. What's it going to say? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is the great hope of the Christian. And as we're going to sing later, Psalm 23, that God is our good shepherd, that he's tender with us, that even though we sin, even though we're tempted to despair in our suffering, he's tender with us. He comes along a bruised reed he won't break. He is our good shepherd. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul, even through the valley of the shadow of death. So we remember these great truths this morning, and we rest in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have come, that you have lived, that you have died, you have rose again and ascended into heaven and ever live to make intercession for your people. That even though we like sheep have gone astray and we are being killed all the day long, suffering many and great persecutions, that even in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That life and death, that no thing in all of creation can separate us from God and the love of God in the finished work of Christ. May our hope be in that this morning. May our faith be in that this morning and in nothing else. And may we rest in that today. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, apply the work of Christ's redemption to us and take us to eternal glory. We pray all these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. So, we come now to the Lord's Supper, where we're reminded of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That Christ did not stay in the tomb, that he rose again. So we not only look back to Christ's death, we not only proclaim his death, but we look forward until he comes again. And so this is a great means of grace for God's people. We're assured through this visible word of God's covenant promises that as surely as the bread was broken and as surely as Christ's body was broken, we have forgiveness for our sins. And as surely as we drink the cup, we remember Christ's blood spilled for us, covering us, the Paschal Lamb that was placed on the mercy seat for us and for our salvation. And so we come this morning to the table aware of our sin, aware of our suffering. And so we come in one sense confessing, right? We should bring our sins before the Lord. We should examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. But we should also come rejoicing, knowing that this is a means of grace for the people of God, that they can have great assurance that as surely as Christ has done it, as surely as we break the bread, we have been forgiven. And so, if you're not a believer, if your faith is not in Christ, we ask that you abstain. But if you are, we ask that you come rejoicing and looking to Christ, not ourselves, not our abilities, but to Him. And so, if you'll come down the center, we'll form a line, you'll grab the elements, circle back to your seat, and wait, and we'll partake of them together, signifying not only our union with Christ, but our union with one another. So, as we come this morning... Come rejoicing.
We're reminded of our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread and after giving thanks, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this remembrance of me. So as we take, eat, remember and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and he blessed it and he said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So as we this morning take the cup, we drink, we remember, and we believe that Christ's blood was spilt for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning as we respond by singing Psalm 23? And we'll sing it to the tune of Amazing Grace.
benediction from Hebrews 13. These great words. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace as you go.